And welcome to the If We Knew Then podcast. I'm Stephen Sox. And I'm Lori Sox. And today we're joined by Julie Pico. We spoke with Julie about a year ago when her daughter Elise was about to turn three. She was two and a half years old and she was making that transition from the early intervention to uh, the school system. We just wanted to check back in and find out how her journey has been going. So welcome, Julie Pico. Good morning, Julie. Good morning, you guys. How are you doing? It's so great to see your face. Yeah, it's really good to see you guys when we're talking. It's nice. First time we've talked and seen each other. So we talked to you, what, a year ago? Wow, probably About a year, year ago. Yep. Since then, since we talked, she aged out of the early interventionist and into the school system. Yes. Do you want to talk about what that transition was like? Sure. And really your guys' advice has been so invaluable and just connecting me with um, the lawyer through hearing her on your podcast, Georgiana. Fortunately, we had her and unfortunately we did need her. And um, that became apparent pretty much immediately. So after the IEP assessment was done and we were very happy with the services that we were given, uh, we knew that there would be a little bit of a lull maybe between the regional center therapies and the LAUSD therapies, but we decided because speech was so important to us to go ahead and also use our insurance for private speech therapy as well. So when we started with the therapist right off the bat, Elise was in her IP and we had this recorded as well, supposed to get one hour of one-on-one speech therapy. And we made it very clear we didn't feel like group speech therapy was helpful for her at that age, that she'd get her socializing in other ways, but that because we want her being worked with directly on that speech therapy, and she imitates and she mimics a lot, that we felt that was best for her. But they came in at just a half hour, and we're insisting that the other half hour would need to be with the group. So I did not accept that. I said, well, we'll take the half hour one-on-one, but I'm not going to waste her time with the other half hour. And We had already started the process of looking at private therapy, so we decided to use that to fill that gap for an hour a week. And we looked at other things too, like an online app that I love called Gemini that um, helps with speech. And then in the summer, they gave us no speech therapy at all. So that was our first two little glitches. And were those the reasons that that it was apparent that you needed to have an advocate or a lawyer with you? It was. Um, I didn't at that time contact Georgiana. I was trying to weigh what I needed to do individually and try to press forward versus contacting her. Also, you know, there's a financial burden in contacting the lawyer too. So, and we had the one hour uh, speech therapy. And honestly, our, our speech therapy experience the first semester was not great, which was good in a way, because it's prepared me to advocate more strongly for my daughter. I was being a little too nice. I think that first semester, we had a um, speech therapist who asked us if we would agree to have the students do the speech therapy. 
And I said, yes. And, and, you know, there are brilliant students out there who would have done really well, but that individual just in particular wasn't a good match for Elise. She did a lot of negative reinforcement. And at one point I had to ask them if they had actually read the IEP because Elise was only speaking, just starting to speak in like two words. And they were trying to force her to do full sentences. And if she didn't do them, it was like, well, then you can't do the thing you want to do online. So I had to step in a little bit with that. Um, but I also decided just for her, because this is about her long-term development, I'm not going to accept um, students stepping in any longer. And it also prepared me just to come into things ready to advocate after that. I think that's one thing that I know for us was definitely a milestone in my development as an advocate to understand that it's not a personal vendetta or I'm doing something wrong. There is an outline to when your child is given speech that it needs to be implemented by a certified speech therapist. And a lot of times because the caseload is overwhelming, they'll they didn't ask us when they pushed it on to the student to do it. They've done that so many times, and that's an inappropriate implementation of that service. And they may not call it student. They may even call it assistant or, or aid or whatever. Aid. But yeah, that, they'll, and, they'll use another word. And I would say you're right. Uh, occasionally, uh, you'll get somebody who's like ready to go and just compassionate and knows what they're doing. But it's not always the case, and I don't feel like my child and this support that we've fought to get should be a part of someone's learning curve. Their curve should be complete when they come to my child because he needs that. And I think that's a really good point to make as far as advocacy goes, that it's nothing personal. It's just what we need to do. And it's okay to stand up. Definitely to stand up and know when to say no. Yeah, we always felt like we needed to do things. But I remember at the very beginning, before we actually hired an attorney, I think one of our discussions were, I think I used the words, do we really want to just walk into the IEP and like kick the door open, fired up before we've even really met the team and, and started a process? And I look back and I think we said it pretty soon after, but look back and said, yeah, that's not a bad way to go in. Because you as the parent can still keep the personal relationship with people. You can you can bring uh, some treats when you come in and some coffee or whatever you like to do. And, but then you can lay the hard stuff on an advocate or attorney. But you have to know what you want. And, mm -hmm. and that was one of my biggest challenges. And that's a lot of times when I talk to parents is that I don't want to be a pain. I don't want to be the one that's difficult. It's, but that is really not even part of the conversation. The part of the conversation, just doing what's right and creating the support system that helps our children access the curriculum. That's it. That's the only sentence. And um, you had said uh, it was apparent that you needed a lawyer. What made it apparent? So following this, you know, we transitioned. We were Zoom all this time with Elise. And so she was receiving her therapies through Zoom. And so I didn't have any uh, communication with principals or being on site. And I, I didn't know who to go to when there were problems. So even just getting her set up in the system so that we could go in person during the fall was a lot of work on my end, a lot of phone calls and, and jumping around. And we thankfully had one of the best physical therapists this whole year, we've had the same person and she's gone way above and beyond you know, you have a spectrum, right? Of people who are helpers. Some don't help at all. And some just go way above and beyond. And she really did. 
her name is Grace, and um, she helped us get in and she would tell us when summer semester was starting and ending and when the breaks were and I could just go to her for anything. So after we got in, I had to push back on a few things. So first, because Elise is what they call private preschool because she's at home with me, she's not actually enrolled in the school. I was going to be bringing her to therapies to our local public school and I wanted to be present. That was very important to me, you know, for a few different reasons. One, I'm her advocate and to just advocate just to change the atmosphere in the room, having someone there is very helpful Two, because the sexual abuse rates of children with disabilities is very high. The average lines for children with Down syndrome, which is sadly still one in five people by the time they're 18, but the controls around those studies show it's because Parents who have children with Down syndrome tend to be older and have more time and resources to be involved and are more hands-on. And so that's one of the speculations as to why. And I'm very sensitive to that just because of work I've done in the past with abused children. And I know that. I know that I um, I, I go above and beyond in that, that area. But that was important to me. So I had to do some emailing. I used some very specific wording. And actually, I got your guys' help with that quite a bit. Thank you. Uh, that was really nice of you guys to allow me to call you and ask you those questions. So I was able to get there in person, and then I had to advocate for us to be able to get our COVID testing on site rather than driving across town. But where it became very apparent when I needed a lawyer was a month and a half into me being there with the therapies. And I just want to say this for any other parents who might be listening to this. I was not um, what you might call a stage mom. I wasn't interfering with the therapies. I was watching. I would encourage, you know, at least wasn't distracted by me. She might look to me for comfort every once in a while, and I'd give her some encouragement. And I might ask the therapist questions so I could take that stuff home and do it at home because that was very important to me. And that's really the reason you want to be there is because then you can do it at home too. But I got some questions about why I felt I needed to be there. And I had already discussed some of the reasons I felt I needed to be there in the beginning. But as I started to discuss them, one of the things that came up was the sexual abuse rate of children with disabilities. And, you know, of course I prefaced that with, I do not believe you're going to do that, but I also don't know you to the core. So one of the responses I got was you're overly sensitive. And I said, well, no, I'm aware. So, and I started quoting stats to her, which she wasn't aware of, but I was wondering where this was coming from. And the pushback kept happening. So then they said the room wasn't safe. It wasn't COVID safe. And they didn't want me in there with Elise and the therapist. And there was another teacher that shared the room um, who did therapies with children in the elementary school. So then I went, well, I don't want my daughter in there if it's not safe. So can I, what can I do? Because clearly if the LAUSD isn't giving you the resources you need to have a safe room, I mean, it's cheaper for me to buy a HEPA filter than to hire my lawyer. So, hey, I'll buy you guys a HEPA filter. Well, that wasn't the reason. Then the principal asked me if I was fully vaccinated, which I was. And so I told her and she said, well, you still can't let you in the room, but that wasn't going to happen. I wasn't not going to be in the room with my child. And just the simple fact that this pushback was happening made me even more so want to be in the room. So I had suspected, which turned out to be correct, that the reason I was being pushed out of this room was that the other teacher that was in the room didn't feel comfortable having another adult in there for COVID reasons. Her father had passed away. So that is a really legitimate concern she has. Although I think it was really just that I was convenient, that she was 
expressing her frustrations at the lack of control she had over the COVID restrictions and being in person versus being out of there, but I'm convenient as a way to express that concern. As a parent though, when you have two people going at you saying, well, why can't you just do it over Zoom? And I'm saying, because Zoom isn't reliable. There's a different quality to being in person when you're learning, but you do start to think you're, am I crazy? <laughs> like, am I wrong? <laughs> Should I not want to be with my three and a half year old daughter? But I did have, I used the lawyer word and it all changed. I just said, okay, well, I just need you to know I'm going to have to contact my lawyer because I have a right, a legal right to be with my child during her therapies. And that's when you kind of heard the, the screeching of the wheels and they went, oh, you have a legal right? Like one of them actually said that. <laughs> I said, yeah, I do. And everything got better from there. And I haven't heard anything since. We spoke when that was happening. We did. And you gave me some great advice and some verbiage to use. I mean, that's, that's the thing. You can't go this alone. I mean, I've said this before, and I will say over and over again, this podcast has been such a lifeline to me. And I know to other people, I really appreciate you guys doing this because you're parents and we all know as parents, how much time that takes and just all those extra efforts people make. That's a lot of work on your guys end. And we really appreciate it. We really do. Well, we're benefiting greatly as well because we're learning every as we go, minute we of learn, this podcast. Right? Yeah. And we want to share that because there's more information out there for us, obviously. But I think we learn from each other. Like with your with your experience, there's a new mom somewhere who will will know and will definitely get this kind of pushback in one way or the other. And that it does come down to your legal right. And it is so unfortunate that you have to say that. I always ask, put it in writing so I may better understand, so myself and my lawyer may better understand. And then if you don't have a lawyer already, you have what they've written down to go bring to your advocate and lawyer or just to have because you can keep that with you. And then when you do go into due process or any of the other steps that you have to take while you're advocating for your child's rights, you, you have it in writing. And that's the most important thing is to get them to put it in writing. A couple things we spoke about when they were doing this to you was that if they weren't going to allow you to be in the room, then let's talk about that one-on-one uh, -on -one aid that my child should have. So we can start discussing that and have an assessment. That's another thing that will make them screech on their brakes because now whatever personal reason that they're taking it out on you or trying to control your situation that just is about to cost them a lot of money. And the one thing they don't want to do is spend money. You know, I, I would imagine getting you on Zoom is going to be more cost effective for them than to have you there in person and uh, in a one-on-one -on -one situation. We've heard a lot of pushback from therapists and I've thought maybe it was because people don't always want a parent in there because they're kind of being watched. But I feel like any confident therapist should be happy for a parent to be in there. Uh, first of all, uh, I'm confident enough in my job that you can witness what I'm doing and, and it's okay. And also, every therapist should have the mindset that they're also teaching the parent to do things. I mean, this is just a couple hours a week. Because you had Caroline for your early intervention. And one of the things, you know, that was great about Caroline and that she even spoke about in our episode with her was that there's so many more hours in that week that can be used supporting your child to reach their goals, whether it be speech or physical or occupational or whatever it might be. So having those tools. And that's something that we can write into our IEP is to have the tools so that you can implement them at home and to help them 
to, so you can support them in reaching their goals. And that's what we do as parents. We've always bounced ideas off of our therapist about maybe what toys to get or what's the best way in this situation and take advantage of your, your therapist. They are highly educated people and also watch what they do and try to incorporate that and in what you do during all those other hours of a week. But I think as a parent, when you're advocating, the one thing is, is we get so afraid to talk back. We get so afraid to stand up. But I just always want to encourage people to remember it's a team and that's what it should be. We're only as strong as our weakest link. So the conversations have to be there. And to be honest, it's probably like within the last year, year and a half that I've actually started asking the bigger questions and started speaking my truth because a lot of times you feel like you can't or you can't say what you're doing is wrong or I don't agree with you because maybe it's manners, politeness, whatever it is. And it's really just been in the last year and a half that if we're all equals in this room, and it gets to a point that this no longer seems like we're supporting my child. I've called some just in the last year, I've called somebody on it and said, I don't understand your hesitation to do what's right for my child. But I want you to know that this is how I feel. And I feel like you're immovable, and that you're not really concerned with my child's well being. And how did they respond? I can't remember exactly. It was like, well, I'm sorry you feel that way. And I just, I stopped and I said, because this had been going on really for a very long time. Uh, Many, many violations of an IEP, many, many conversations where the person just did not want to support Liam in the way that was age appropriate in a manner that actually utilized those speech minutes to improve his speech. And speech is so huge. Speech is so huge because It's the expressive language. And unfortunately, unless people can understand you, there's so many misperceptions that go along if they can't understand you. They don't recognize that your child's learned sign language to communicate with them. And that is, it's a second language. It's It's one of the number one traits that any human looks at another human and judges their cognitive ability. And so it's so, so important for us to participate on an equal level. And for me, that's a constant challenge because there's this foot that we start off on. And I think I think it comes down to like societal misperceptions and how we receive our diagnosis, just the, the little things, these little seeds. And we automatically come from this place that we think that we're asking for something special and we're not. If I could go back, I would come from that place of equality from go, because I think that's the mindset that we have to be. We're all equal members. And the goal is this. And how do we how do we get there? And all those services can be a gift where you go, Oh, we're so lucky to have this. Let's say it's not charity. It's not something that is being given to us or to our children. It's a right that is being delivered to them. So we can be appreciative and call it a gift and think of it as, oh, we're so glad we had this person or, and tell them how much we appreciate them. But we need to understand as parents that it's a right that we should expect to receive. And also we should expect that that person's going to do the best job ever. We should expect that. You that can should sense be the that expecta- pretty quickly too. But the, I think the expectation is we're willing to take, you know, the aid or we're willing to, I don't even know if it's willing that we just don't quite, you know, we don't question it because we just. Yeah. I mean, we, we don't do that in so many other facets of our life. I mean, there's people that will not go to the hair training studio to get their hair done 
when someone is learning to do it with a maybe professional next to them for some of the time, they won't do it because they go, well, I, I'm not going to make my hair a, an experiment. And that's your hair. He's saying that because I've gone. Yeah, but and we've, <laughs> we've had to deal with that, right? I have too, and you don't always come out looking right. <laughs> right. And there's times, I guess, you try it, but then you go, wait, and this, and this is just your hair. So when we expect a therapy to be delivered, then we expect the best. We expect we need the therapy, the best. right? Yeah, right. We expect the therapy. And a therapist. And a therapist. That was a very long tangent on a very short point of changing that mindset to where we're equal and advocating. Unfortunately, I find that the words are so important to know the right words. And having a lawyer, that's what sometimes it takes people to do their job. Yeah. I mean, it goes back to that whole disparity issue too, that you know, you have to have that. And we think about that all the time and how we're going to use that to benefit others because there's so many other people who can't afford a lawyer. It's kind of like what you guys are doing right now in this podcast. You're taking your gifts and you're sharing them with others so that even if they can't afford a lawyer, they can go, okay, like that verbiage you gave me, I will use from now on right from the bat. Okay. Well, thank you. Um, never heard that before. Can you please put that in writing so I can forward that to my lawyer? You know, even just that, right? To start the conversation rather than trying to maneuver around the different possible reasons for this being asked and, you know, trying to confront it in different ways, which, you know, everything you guys are talking about is probably the biggest issue for parents, right? That's why it is good to have like a long conversation about it because it's probably one of the more emotional aspects of being a parent with a child with a disability because you have to interact with these people to get your child their services and you don't always get people who have absolutely the best intentions in mind it's like with any other job right anything from what you do professionally what i do professionally to your auto mechanic to your doctor you know there's there's always the underachievers right and what happens when you take your car to a mechanic who doesn't fix it right or tries to charge you for something that's not wrong with it or lets you go drive it and then you find out that your tube has been taped with duct tape? What You go back to them and you say, oh, I'm so sorry. Um, maybe we can work on getting a better duct tape or um, you can have. No, you don't. You fire them. Right. You say this, this relationship doesn't work. Um, let's move on to get, and you don't necessarily have that conversation with them, but you do, you don't tolerate it, right? You don't tolerate it. You don't go back to the coffee shop who gives you a weak cup of coffee or the wrong order or who's rude to you. You don't, I mean, there's so many things that you just say, you know what? You don't have to be angry about it. You can just go, oh, well, no, that just doesn't work for me. Like you said, as parents of a child with a disability, there's so many things there. There are so many things with your everyday life, with the diagnosis, with your family, with your child. Maybe there's behaviors with milestones, with even just taking care of your day-to-day -day life. Like that is so sacred. Those your life, you have the same right to live your life and enjoy your life. And I think it's so unfair that then we're forced to put all this extra energy into doing people's jobs, being accountable for other people not doing their job, babysitting professionals who don't do their job. And their job has to do with children with learning differences and disabilities. Shame on you for not doing your job. Go work at any other place where you don't have an impact, a permanent impact on someone's life. You're impacting their family and you're impacting that child. You're impacting their 
abilities, their opportunities that will be given to them in life. So if I could go back, I would just have that confidence of, I always tell you, Julie, I'm like, no emotion. They go into it with no emotion. And you know what they do? The first thing they try to do is work on your emotion. When it was in person, there'd be so many IEPs, they tell you to get there and you sit in the office for 15 minutes while everybody gets around the table. And then you walk in and everybody's set up and you got all your bags and stuff, but everybody's setting up, staring at you, looking. That's that's a psychological, like we're not a team. We're clearly not a team. Every time you could be there early and every oh. time you feel like you're late. Right. And, and so, then, oh, let me and scramble and get my stuff together fast. So it's not a team. It's Nobody rushes up and says, let me help you. Mrs. Socks, Mr. Socks. Oh, you know, oh, let's make room. You're squeezing in, you're trying to plug in and it's, it's not a team and it's not emotional, but they will try to use your emotions against you in any way. We had somebody say, but we, we love him so much. I can't wait to get him back here. We love him. And at the same time, deny a placement for our son. And I was like, that's not love, but they're trying to use that emotion for us to go, oh, they would never do anything bad. So when we can go in there without emotion and just as many facts as possible, you know, and the lawyer, definitely, because I, I have to tell you, having Georgiana at, by our side, it just, it's a stress relief, right? Even just some of the things where we go, okay, this could either be me writing four letters and having them come back with stuff that we know is nonsense and not the truth, but one letter from a lawyer and they're abiding by the law and it shouldn't be that way. But if you don't have a lawyer, then writing those letters, going on to your uh, website for your school district on what, I mean, the timelines are pretty basic, but finding out the timelines of an assessment plan, requesting an assessment plan, how long they have to respond with an IEP and the different things that are just rights. Unfortunately, we have to do the work. So we have to know what the law is and then when we ask for something, we have to know what we're asking for. And then we have to, and this is why I know that it's not a team, because then we have to prove why we need it. But once you get past that, it's un, that it's unfair. And if, and if every parent can just say, this is what my child needs, this is why this is the law. Oh, no, please put that in writing so that I may better understand and pass it on to my lawyer. Always, thank you so much for your constant concern for my child and accessing the curriculum. But knowing that an IEP is a legal binding document, it is not a favor. And then we have a voice, right? I've had this conversation so many times in the last couple of weeks, just speaking to different committees at our school saying, you know what, this is what's happening to our demographic. This is what is happening to our community. And people are, for the most part, shocked. I, I think I gave it my best go at expecting people to do the right thing. And now in a non, again, non-emotional, factual way, it's just about saying, this is what's happening and this is wrong. And if there's a, a place at your school or your district where you can file a grievance or a complaint, make a comment. And I think that what we need is for just our voices to be heard. So it's not such a challenge. Yeah. I, um, confrontation is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. You can go into it kind. You can say things that are not easy for people to hear in a kind way, but you have to say them because you can't hold people accountable for what you don't tell them, even though some things you should be able to hold them accountable for. And then you get basically two responses. One, like the response you got from that woman, like, well, I'm sorry you feel that way. And I don't care basically. 
or people change people wow and they didn't realize that was how they were coming off or they don't want to be that person they do want to grow and so either you get growth or then you can go okay it's time to move on to someone else because i've made my effort but it is hard when it's a, a very personal thing and and like a friend of mine always says when she's going through some difficulties i'm growing in god i'm growing in god like i'm just learning how to manage all of this it's tough you know part of the thing is the balance of the the real world and the real life and all the beauty that's there juxtaposed to those challenges that we have with the education system yeah we we've made choices like we all have to make choices right and for us some of our choices are are much easier than i think the vast majority of people in the us i mean we're in a position where my husband can work and i can choose to be home so i can do the therapies with her um we won't be able to rent the house we would like with the yard because we have to make sure we have the money for a lawyer every year. And, you know, so we're making choices, but still, you know, we, we always try to look at things in the positive light. You know, I'm still able to be home with my daughter and there are a lot of people who aren't. So just looking at those privileges and appreciating them and, um, you know, there's choices we're making and I am going to be looking to the future um, after January, sending her to the same preschool Jasmine was in for, three half days a week and moving on that way. I mean, it's just been so strange with the pandemic anyways. I can't even call it our, our normal life, right? It's just very different. But I did have a very interesting situation, a medical situation, which I am um, glad I had. So Elise and Jasmine both can do things with their eyeballs I can't do. Like they just, I mean, I have, I work really hard can move one eyeball the opposite direction of the other, but theirs just can like go all over. Aaron's can do this too. But I was getting a little concerned because sometimes we'd be at meals and one of either of them would have an eye just kind of shoot out. And I was going, oh, I couldn't tell if they were doing it on purpose or not. Jasmine insisted they were. So my doctor referred me to a specialist who's like the best at this, right? And I took them in and they had their masks on because it's a pandemic. He gave them a full assessment. He was going on and on about they had great depth perception, both of them, and they have full control and no, they just, there's nothing wrong there, no odd eye movement. And that they're both a little farsighted. Jasmine was like 1.5. She had been more farsighted previously. So she's growing out of it. And at least was three right on the line. And he was talking about how when someone's farsighted on the line of three, they typically don't give them glasses because there's just not enough data information out there, evidence showing that that's helpful, but it's right on the line. And he was kind of has like wondering. So then he started doing this thing. <laughs> he kept staring at her and he was like, can you take her mask off? And she took her mask off. He goes, oh, she's really cute. And Jasmine, of course, pulls down her mask. She's like, I'm cute too. And then he gets up and he leaves the room and he comes back and he goes, can I see her hand? And I knew right then what was going on. You know, most children with Down syndrome have a, a line. She doesn't have it though. So he pauses and he goes, um, does she, um, does she, and I go have Down syndrome? And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I just, and I, I was like, no, it's fine. Yeah, she does. I, I thought it would be on the, the medical paperwork, but she does have Down syndrome, you know, because I think he was worried he would offend me. Right. Of course, I'm not going to be offended, but again, it just shows like he doesn't have any close relationships to anyone with a child with Down syndrome. And he then starts to question it a little bit more because children with Down syndrome have low tone and tend to have more issues with their eyesight and stuff. But he said something that was really interesting to me. 
kind of in his fluster, he goes, oh yeah, I saw the line on her hand and I didn't say anything, but I'm thinking she doesn't have a line on her hand. And that's why you still didn't know, you know, so many things came into my mind, you know, just back in history and studying that you will find what you look for. So you're not supposed to go in looking for anything. You're supposed to just go in looking for the truth and, and seeing what's there and putting those pieces together because otherwise you will you will skew the truth on purpose. You will ignore the stuff you don't want to know. And so I just thought, gosh, you know, he just, he just did that. I'm so glad he didn't know she had Down syndrome before he gave her a full assessment. Because what if he came out of that totally different or looking for things that weren't there? Um, so that was a good lesson for me as a mom and just to trust my gut on things, even with the medical community, which you know that, but you need those reinforcements from time to time. Because, you know, we were talking about this before, too. There's no such thing as a good prejudice. You know, there's just not. And every one of us can fall into seeing something or thinking we know more about it than we do. I'm just not going to let anyone ever do that to my daughter any more than I want to allow myself to do that about someone. One of the things that stuck in my mind that you said, and I don't know the words, but I'm, when I edit, I'll get it all. But don't look for something or, or if you're expecting something, you're looking you for look that, for. you'll find it, right? And I feel like that's what happens when the school administration says, this is really what you should do. You should take your child off curriculum. So what we're going to do is we're going to have an alternate curriculum that we build around your child. We look at what your child needs. It sounds great, but to me, you're, you've already preset now a destination for your child. Well, and it doesn't make sense to me. I mean, if the child's in the classroom and they're not being involved, then are they going to get bored? I mean, are they? that's when a kid acts out, right? Like if you're not involved with the rest of the kids or feeling separated. Also, I don't want Liam dictating what he is going to be taught, right? There's no reason why you can't push a child with Down syndrome and say, oh, you know what? This is This is our goal. We're going to get there. We just need maybe a little more work to get there or not. But let's not predestine that in kindergarten, first grade. Alternate curriculum is, in my eyes, I think it's good for some people. Like they tried to tell, they tried to tell us, well, we just don't want to see Liam get frustrated. Come to my house and watch Sophia do math. That's frustration, right? My conversation is, okay, well, let's make sure we have the right support so that they can access the curriculum, which is his right by law, right? What supports does he need? Because he's shown that he has the cognitive ability to learn. What supports does he need? When they pull him off curriculum, I think it makes them not accountable. That's how I see it. They're not accountable. It's like kindergarten, doesn't matter what you learn. First grade, you're all good all the way up. And that's why people... Uh, well, look, he's hitting all his goals or her goals, but this, but we but the set goals the goal totally reachable. And then you're always going to get them. And so everyone looks good. Yeah. And so everybody looks good. But what happens is then they graduate from high school with no education, may not even read. Yeah. So how can, what's the quality of life there? How can he get a job? How can he be a functioning member? And then it's put member? on that child. Then it's, then it's on, put the, on child. the adult now. Then it's put on the chromosome. And then it's fruition of what they always believed See, that told you. Down syndrome was. But it isn't. Funny you say that because the same thing happens with kids with dyslexia often, right? Or did when I was younger. And, and I think I told you guys this before. I had severe dyslexia. I mean, you could hang my, my page up in the mirror, my mama said, and read it backwards. And um, I remember you know, the first like four to five years of my elementary school life, they would separate me. They put me in a room and ba basically babysit me. I was bored out of my mind. They took me off curriculum. And what they didn't realize was that was the worst thing you could have done for me because everybody learns in a different way at a different pace. And I finally got a, a teacher. So like, and I was really good at math, you know, I could do things, but once I was, I think in third grade, you had to read your own directions. 
And I couldn't do that. And I don't even know that I couldn't have done it, but you're told so often that what you're doing is wrong, that you just kind of stop trying, right? And then in the fifth grade, I had a teacher who broke the rules and she'd come over and whisper the directions to me in math. And I aced all my math again. And someone talked to my mom and she decided, okay, well, we're going to stop sending her, you know, to these pull out of the classroom during reading. And they're giving me like, you know, first grade, second grade books. So I got a first grade reading comprehension level. And she bought a bunch of books for me, like White Fang by Jack London and a bunch of these books where, and I remember, I remember trying to read it with the words kind of floating on the page. And I remember coming out to her and she'd be like, I can't, I can't read it. Like every time I get a sentence down, then I can't. And she's like, just don't worry about it. Keep it. I think I read that first paragraph like five times. And then I read the whole book. And then I read like every book I could get my hands on. And by the time I was in the sixth grade, I had an eighth grade reading comprehension level, but I was way behind on understanding what is punctuation? What is this? What is that? It took me a while to catch up. I would say, I don't think I fully caught up until I was like at the end of my, my high school year. Like most people wouldn't probably notice, but I can look, I can look and see like, but I, I feel like it's so much the same thing. Like those adaptive resources, like you guys said, calculators, spelling words, but it doesn't have to be 20. It just has to be 10 with the same sounds. Those are the things I am really listening to you guys about and picking up on because if they had done stuff like that for me, where they had kept me in the classroom, but found adaptive ways, you know, so like, as I'm learning to read and keep me on curriculum, because I probably would have been more interested in wanting to read those books and figured that out earlier, whatever my brain was doing, right, rather than being separated, and then you just kind of give up too, right, at school, it's just not as interesting, you just don't care as much because you're being told all the time what you're doing isn't like everyone else, but I really pay attention to that, and, and that's something I'm so glad I went through now, because I have a lease. I think about like that spelling words, man, then now we fast forward to where Liam is and there is no spelling test anymore. It's just not a thing they do. They don't do spelling words, spelling tests. They'll do vocabulary words and stuff. But then we're doing Google Docs and it's telling you what the next word should be, possibly could be. Why let that hold back your child from moving on to the next thing? Because then you're a couple years down the line and that doesn't even matter anymore. Right. It won't matter. I think it's just having that support. And like you said, the great thing about your story is as soon as they say, we'd like to take her off curriculum, if they ever say it, and I hope they don't, but if they do, you've got that story. Yeah, that's great. And that's proof because- I was thinking, if, could I use that and just say it was me? Yeah, go ahead. I give you permission. <laughs> but that's the truth. You're living proof of what would have happened and how you had this ability, but you just didn't have the supports. Right. And 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 if that teacher wouldn't have helped you mm-hmm. and your mom wouldn't have gotten you those books and, and supported you, then they would have let you ride the wave of their expectation of you got you out and you wouldn't have reached your potential. Right. Do you guys want to meet Elise? Oh, is she there? She's here. She's out there making noise. Oh, yes. yeah. Oh, here they come. Guys. Hello. Hi. How are you? Hello, family. Hello. You say hi, Elise? Hi. Hello. Can you say hi, Lori? Holly. Hi, Stephen. Stephen. There you go. Oh, That's my gosh. Hard, your oh speech is amazing. Yeah, her speech is fantastic. Good job. We give these back to okay, you. Yes. Let's go finish our lunch. Nice to see you. Hi, guys. Nice to see you. Oh, my gosh. She's adorable. Her speech is great. She's doing really good. So I'm learning her learning pattern. So like with Jasmine, it was kind of like a, a hill climb, right? It was just diagonally always going up. And with Elise, it's like I feel like we're teaching, teaching, teaching. And it's kind of like a straight line. And all of a sudden, boom, like it just jumps up. So like she came out the other day singing and she's saying twinkle, twinkle, little star to us. And we were like, we didn't know you could do that. 
we had we had no idea. So of course I'm videotaping it. Do you want to talk a little bit about figuring out her uh, learning pattern? Because I think that's something that as parents, you know, milestones are huge for any parent and then they tend to weigh more on us. And there's always that question, will they, will they, will they? And I love that you said we're learning her learning pattern. We're figuring out her learning pattern. Yeah. Yeah. We're trying to, um, I've, I've listened to a lot of your podcasts and you'll have to remind me, I'm sorry. It was, a uh, in British Columbia, you had mentioned that one to me. It was the two women from a down syndrome resource foundation. Yeah. I loved that. Like you guys were talking about the tools in that as well, that you can use and the visuals and why visuals, like if you have a picture of a cat and you're doing a spelling test of a cat that just gives them that ability to not have to remember what they were supposed to remember on top of trying to spell it. So learning things like that, looking out ahead to see, try all those different things with her and see what, what works with her. You know, with the first child, I feel like I was always pushing, right? And I think this is a very typical first, second child thing. The first child pushing, pushing the second child. I'm just not, not worried. <laughs> okay. I'm just like, you're going to get there. And I feel like I'm doing that with Elise. And then sometimes I have to stop myself and say, no, you need to learn because she learns differently from Jasmine. And I don't want to just become complacent and not give her all the best opportunities that she can have. But I do find myself kind of slipping into that second child thing where eh, I just, it'll come. But that's, that's inclusion, isn't it? That's inclusion. It'll come, you know, as parents, we do put a different pressure on ourselves. What, what I started doing with our family, I said, okay, we'll wake up and what are we practicing today? Because that's what's going to be what we create, right? What are we going to practice today? I'm going to practice exercising. <laughs> I'm going to practice my cello. I'm going to practice whatever it is to create and take that pressure off like every day, make it into that. So it doesn't have this, for me, this overwhelming thing. I uh, can't tell you how many times that I felt that failure more so with Liam that, oh, I've given up. And it's so, it's so heavy. It's like, what? No, you haven't given up. You're, you're a human, not a robot. And you took a breath or you ate a meal or you trusted where they were going or, you know, you have to do like, you can't, I guess like when you, when you make cupcakes and you're going to fill them with like the cream filling, like you fill some and then you have to see how high it is before you add more and do the decoration. It's the same thing with any kind of input. You, you put it out there, you have to let it breathe a little bit to see where you are to allow, to allow Liam to show us where he is. Because I think about how hard he works. Everybody in this house knows he's the hardest working person in this house. And there have been times when he does do something that we'd been working on so hard and that I think that I gave up on, but did I really give up on it or did I just allow him a moment to absorb it and, and become? Well, sometimes that's the benefit of being the second child. You know, both of our, our second children have Down syndrome, but that doesn't mean that we have to put that extra pressure of what we might not be doing for that second child. That They have to experience that in their life too. And there's benefits and maybe you know, pros and cons maybe to that. I was an only child, so it's hard for me to, to say, but there's definitely not the pressure on neurotypical kids' parents. It's of, a joke. They'll be like, I just yeah. had six kids, so that one can take uh, care of that yeah, one, right? You, but <laughs> like you have this pressure. Walking around right? eating dirty cookies off of the floor. <laughs> like, I think that's just an example of inclusion that you you give yourself that grace and ability to let it be what it is 
And as a parent, you're always going to do your best. Yeah. Yeah. I do feel like there's a huge blessing in having her as my second child, just because it reduces the unknowns because you already know certain things like she's three and a half and she's lots of no's lots of like sitting down and refusing to go. And it's easy for me to go, okay, I remember this. Jasmine went through this. It took a year. I'll survive it. This is typical, right? Like this is good. Get, get past it. Or if you were a, a new parent, a first time parent, you might wonder, is this okay? Is this typical? Is it not? And then if you don't have the right resources or people around you to go, Hey, it's okay. They're going to grow out of it. It's going to be okay. Then you, you might overthink it. And then yeah, I think you're right. I, sometimes I feel like I'm not pushing her as much as Jasmine and and maybe that's, you know, not a benefit, but maybe it is because she's just finding her own way. Why do you think you don't push her as much as Jasmine? Because it's not as exciting with the second child. <laughs> like I don't take as many photos. <laughs> like it's just, I mean, it's like with the first kids, you're like, oh my gosh, they, you know, burped. I mean, you just anything, right? Like you're just so excited. And with the, with the second child, I just feel like I'm like, I've been there. I've done that. It's not as exciting. And I know she'll do it. I mean, there's some things where because of her long tone, she's going to take a lot longer to do with Jasmine. And in a way I kind of enjoy that because I feel like otherwise with the second child time would be going by so fast that that way I get to kind of just sit in it and just love her up. I mean, she's not going to be this little and soft and squishy for that much longer. Right. So, um, and I know I'm kind of in this sweet spot too. I feel like it's going to change a lot once she's enrolling for kindergarten and first grade, because that's where I think a lot of my real battlers are going to come in because right now when I'm enrolling her for the private preschool, it's all play-based learning. No one's going to fight me on curriculum. No one's going to, you know, tell me that, she can't do this or that. I just, cause I know these women and, and I know that they're going to really treat her as an individual, but I, I'm ready that when she's entering kindergarten and first grade, that I have to be on top of that. Like, and it's so helpful listening to you guys about that. So like keeping her on curriculum, like hearing you guys say that it's like, that's what my expectations are going to be unless for her, she can't, but otherwise those are my expectations. And it's like the story you guys had with a, forgive me if I pronounce his name wrong, but a Sadr Isa. My daughter can have a daughter. That's a huge difference in my mindset when I was, you know, first pregnant and figuring this all out and thinking like, you know, I remember watching someone had sent me uh, a link to a show on TV where a mom is having a conversation. She didn't send it to me for this reason, but the mom just happened to be having a conversation with her daughter with Down syndrome about why she shouldn't have children. And I'm thinking, gosh, that is going to be a really hard conversation for me to have with my daughter, how do I do that? And then, then I started wondering after Elise was born and seeing like, this isn't at all what I thought it was. Is that not a possibility? And then like reading, I read up on it and they were like, well, it's just very hard for most people with Down syndrome to get pregnant. And then you had that interview with him and he talked about other people saying they had parents. And I went, I'm not listening to anyone about any limitations at this point. Like she's gonna be able to do whatever she wants. and. I'm kind of jumping, but you know, we just finished our special needs trust for her. And two of the stipulations we put in there that weren't in there was one, if we both pass away, the girls are not to be separated from each other. They cannot be if one, if somebody says, well, I can only manage taking care of one of them, then you're not the right fit and they need to move on to someone else. But also that when Elise is older, 
that she is not allowed to be put into an institution or a group home. So group homes work good for some people, but for her, I want her to have as much independence as possible. No curfews, no, like you can't bring your boyfriend up to your room. I want her to have as much as she can. And then as things change, if she needs a little bit more oversight, fine, we'll, we'll put that in. But I'm learning her learning curve and I'm also growing with her. You know, I'm just, it all, it, it sounds maybe a little cloudy the way I'm saying it all, but that's because it's kind of like that in my mind, right? It's just this explosion of new information and most of it's so good. I mean, we're so happy. And if I could go, go back to myself when I got that first diagnosis and just go, you won the jackpot. You know, that doctor who told you that you'd be lucky, like you're winning the lottery if your kid functioned over a seven-year-old, he was wrong. You won the lottery. It doesn't matter. I mean, some parents, kids don't talk. Some are nonverbal. Some are not going to be able to stay on curriculum and it doesn't matter. They all are so happy. And I'm not being very articulate right now because I'm kind of in my own mind, but that's how it really feels. Like if somebody were in my mind, it's all over the place like that. Like, I'm so excited. I'm so happy. I don't want to fail her. I, I don't want to be too overbearing. Sounds a little bit like a typical mom, right? Doesn't it? Yeah. And letting your child decide for herself what her future will be. How old was Elise when you got the link? Oh, that link? Um, I might have been pregnant or she might have. So she wasn't born yet? And they were telling you that she wasn't going to have kids. Isn't that just, I believe people do come from, I always say it, they do their best. Sometimes their best falls short of what I would want it to be. But um, that was their best. But they definitely in a million years wouldn't send you that about your older daughter. They wouldn't say she's not going to have kids or all of these things that they do. Because then that's something that you have to muck and mire through. And it's a whole process that you have to go through to get to that place of, well, why not? That's not the truth to, until you uncover. You have to do work to uncover that that's a non-truth. That's a misperception, right? Where you don't have to do that with your other daughter. You don't, you're not forced to do that with our older children. And if somebody said that about our older children, we'd be like, that's a lot of nerve, right? When those start going away, when those links and those stories and those seem like helpful things, when people understand that's not a helpful thing, it's not a positive, uh, it does cause a challenge. When, when we stop getting those as parents, I think that will definitely be a win because then we're not forced to worry about something that doesn't exist. Like it, it, just, it just doesn't exist. She at least may not want to have kids. Right. She may choose to adopt. Like anyone. Like anyone. It's a really great point that you've come to the place of saying, no, that's not real. And, you know, hopefully then the parents who come behind us know that it's not a truth and it's not something that we even need to be thinking about right now. That's not something that, that we need to even be putting any energy to. Right? Right. We had had a, a conversation with Melissa Kainach about all the externals that exist unnecessarily. And as a parent, just getting to that point where we're just present in the reality of what our journey is right we have we use our energy to to advocate and we take care of ourselves because that's what really what we have to do as parents and find our voice and be a voice and a support for not only our children but the people who are coming behind us to make the difference you know in their lives I see the progression and the changes and and that's a really good thing 
and to not to not let those battles really take away from the good stuff. Yeah, yeah, and you know, confession time. I uh, I, I think about this a lot. This is something where I really regret it, and I regretted it the moment I did it because I felt something in me saying, "No, that was that was wrong." But even more so after having at least there was one time I had a woman call me who was working for a school. She had someone given her my name and she was asking me questions related to her work. And I was talking to her and she mentioned that she was going to be coming our way to look for a school for her daughter because her daughter was graduating high school, but she um, had a disability and they were going to be looking for a special school. And my response was, oh, I'm sorry. And she said, oh, no, it's, it's all right. And I knew the moment, I went, oh, why, why did I just say that? But now as that mom, I can hear my voice in hers, right? Like, and, and I, I tried looking her up <clears throat> I tried finding her to tell her like, hey, I get it now, you know? And, and, I, and I'm sorry I said that, I shouldn't have said that, but I couldn't find her one day. I'm sure I'll run into her somehow, but I try to remember that about giving grace, right? As, as much grace as I've been given in my life, but, the times I know of it and the times I don't know of. Um, yeah, I try to give grace and think people are coming from the best place possible, but also not putting up with it, you know? Yeah, because it's a, we're changing the story. People only know the story. And it goes back to when you say, when you actually have to put in a living trust, do not put my daughter in an institution. I'd be surprised if there were many parents of a child that was neurotypical who would have to make that stipulation. And that's a concern because it was historically... It's real and it's where a lot of this stems from. And also I think of that mom when her daughter was born, what she had gone through, right? What was her journey and what had she uh, carried with her? I've always wondered where these stereotypes come from. Why do people think the happiest people ever when they're, when they're these full human beings? I get what you're saying. It's a different love. It's an unconditional love with no, no agenda. That's the only way I can ex explain Liam is that he just has no agenda. He's, he's from that place of like pure love. And if we, if we all came from that place, I think we'd all always appear to be pretty happy. I've always wondered where some of these stereotypes came from. They come from lack of diversity, right? I mean, isn't that where, where all prejudice come from? Yes. And I discovered a book that somebody recommended to us. Roy Rogers and Dale Evans had a child with Down syndrome. And you have to think it was the 1950s. And this was a book that she wrote after her daughter had passed. And I'm reading the story now from the outside so many years later where we know medical truths, where, we, where you can look on it from the outside and go, well, why wasn't there speech therapy? Why, you know, you, you can see it. But, and one of the things was the happiest person ever and I feel like there was something about that book. Like when I think about who Roy Rogers and Dale Evans were, first of all, their child was denied heart surgery. And this was one of the things that eventually made caused her to die. But I've spoken to people before about that same heart surgery, and it has to happen within a certain window. And I can't help but thinking that doctor just didn't think it was worth it. And some of the stereotypes in that book that this woman obviously had to navigate on her own because she lived in the time when they said, let me take your kid kind of thing. And it was noble to raise your kid. I think a lot of those stereotypes can be 
found in the book that she wrote because that was her journey and she was like this beacon. And so people just automatically took them as truths. And so I think that tells us also the power of our words and the truths that we create and the stories that we put out there. We, we have that same power to change the conversation. And it is a different day where there is more medical research. There are more supports. There's just so much out there that we also have the facts to change that conversation. And then down the line, the generations that come behind us aren't up against those misperceptions. They can just get right to the heart of living instead of dealing with all of this extra stuff, like the box inside of the box inside of the box. We can just get straight to the good stuff. To the time when we can all emotionally evolve to the place where Liam is, that unconditional love. Yes. Julie, I'm so happy that we got to talk to you this morning. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. I can't wait to meet you guys in person one day. Oh, that'd be great. Yes. Please follow us on Twitter at If We Knew Then Pod, and you can drop us a line on our Facebook page at If We Knew Then Pod, or visit our website, ifweknewthen.com, to send us an email with questions and comments. And you can join our mailing list there and get alerts of future podcast episodes. All these links will be added to this episode's show notes. Thank you again, and we look forward to you joining us on the next episode of If We Knew Then. Come and talk.